Welcome back to the program. Once upon a time, we got our international news through the relentless reporting of foreign correspondents. The Vietnam War may have brought war into our living rooms for the first time, but reporters still provided context. Citizens would come to understand events through the consistency of work from a reporter through time and through experience. Today, that foreign correspondent, satirized by Evelyn Waugh and celebrated by Hitchcock, is an endangered species. Today, the freelance reporter dashing about and multitasking, looking at events on a one-off basis, may not have the same contextual understanding. As a result, we tend to look at distant events without the benefit of context or connection, so that our mistakes and failures appear untethered from each other. And this, coupled with our short memories and even shorter attention spans, prevents the foreign correspondent from providing the real first draft of history. My guest today, HDS Greenway, has been an eyewitness to some of the most profound events of our time, from the fall of Saigon to ethnic cleansing in the Balkans, the horrors of both Gulf Wars. He has provided both reporting and context. He's reported for Time, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe for more than a half a century. And it is my pleasure to welcome HDS Greenway here to talk about his new memoir, Foreign Correspondent. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to have you here. You know, we talk about young people today not appreciating the nuances and, and the history of journalism, and yet I was struck in reading your memoir. It's hard to imagine a young person reading this story today that wouldn't want your life, that wouldn't want the opportunity to do the things that you did. Well, uh, it's more difficult now, as you pointed out. Right. Uh, the, the big papers and television networks just aren't fielding the same staff of foreign correspondents as they used to. So it's it's harder to get a foothold now. The other part of it that I think is particularly profound in the stories that you tell is the connection between American policy itself and the public's understanding of that policy and the important role that journalists and foreign correspondents have played as intermediaries in helping the public understand that, which has in turn shaped so much of, a, of American policy. Well, in, in, um, in previous wars, before Vietnam, in Korea and um, World War II and World War I, uh, reporters were more of a branch of the military, if you will. They they were on the team. And um, in Vietnam, when we started to realize that not all the brief, everything said at the briefings in Saigon matched with what we were seeing in the field, um, we became more skeptical. And uh, American officials would chastise us and say, why don't you get on the team and um, report the news the way we see it? And that's where Vietnam was a big watershed that we we didn't think we needed to be on the team. We thought our duty was to the reader um, or the viewer to to see what was really happening. So that was a, 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 a big change. And that's why we called the briefings in Saigon given by the military as the five o'clock follies, because <laughs> they would brief at five o'clock every afternoon. And but it. It really wasn't the real story of what was happening. 
talk a little bit about the big institutions and and you worked for time and you you write a lot about that and about Henry Luce the the big institutions and the role they saw themselves playing in reporting what was going on around the world well there's no doubt about it the the big news in, they saw themselves as players Henry Luce considered himself very much part of the establishment and uh, it's hard to remember now that time and life had such a grip on the American public uh, in those days. Um, life is all but gone, and time really doesn't have the same foreign staff as it had before. But they loose considered Vietnam in the same view as China. He'd been born in China, the child of missionaries, and he thought... The, the, losing Vietnam would be akin to losing China. So there was kind of a battle between the reporters going on in the field and the writers back in New York of what was really going on. One of the other institutional aspects is where Lou says to you at one point, or says to somebody, that being the Time London correspondent was a job second only to being the U.S. ambassador. Well, exactly. <laughs> a little bit of hubris there. But I, I, I really think that that's what Henry Luce wanted. And his building there, the Time Life building in London on the corner of Bruton and New Bond Street, was one of the first buildings built after World War II. It had Henry Moore statues in the garden, and it hummed with researchers and typists and photography darkrooms and reporters and and you know, really dozens and dozens of people. Today, there's not a single reporter or news organization in that building. I think it belongs to Hermes now, <laughs> or rented by Hermes, the the French firm. Um, so it, it, nobody's spending the money on foreign news as, as they were. So in that sense, it was a golden age. What is the consequence, as you see it, of not spending that money, and, and put, don't put it in an economic context necessarily, but of the public not having the kind of access that it had to what was going on around the world? Well, I think that's a big problem, because in a democracy, an informed public is absolutely necessary. Now, there's still some great work being done, but fewer and fewer outlets are doing it um and for the reporter you you don't have the same backup as you mentioned the 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 freelancer doesn't have anybody behind him and i i was in baghdad in 2005 and the boston globe was then owned by the new york times and i had an armored mercedes with bodyguards to take me from the airport to the hotel with a chase car behind full of bodyguards with machine guns just to get me uh, from the airport to the hotel, which in those days was a dangerous run. But still, the, the, the freelancer today doesn't have that institutional backup. So it's extremely hard for him and risky. Um, now, it's risky for the New York Times people, too. I mean, if somebody comes and shoots you, that's it. But it's always been a dangerous business, but it's 
particularly hard and dangerous for the freelancer today, um, especially in a place like Syria where there's no one on our side, so to speak, at least in previous wars, if you were with one side or the other, they would have some responsibility for you, but in Syria, it's just a free-for-all. One of the other things that began to change primarily with Vietnam is television and the war, the pictures of the war, the images of the war coming into our homes. Talk a little bit about what it was like being there as a foreign correspondent, knowing that the public was also seeing the images that it was seeing on television. Well, that's true, but one, um, you know, often the newspapers set the agenda, which the television would follow. And having, uh, my feeling was that the more the Americans saw of the story, the more I was free to write the background of the story of what was going on and why and and um, in a sense, it was sort of a, 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 a freed me up a little bit because I didn't have to worry so much about describing exactly what everything looked like. What about the excitement and camaraderie that came from covering war zones? And, and what impact did that have, or does it have, on coverage? Well, there's no doubt about it. The, the adrenaline rush is certainly there, but um, I don't think that's necessarily detrimental to a story. Or um, I, I would hope that it, the, it would mean that people were, were willing to, to take that extra step um, to get the story do you think that television has stepped up or or did at least for a while in terms of its coverage of what was going on around the world? Yes, but but today, and I think the television guys and women would agree with me that often now they don't shoot their own film. They buy their film from someone else. And that can be, that can run into problems because you're, you're never quite so sure that the film is authentic. And from time to time, television has been uh, embarrassed by buying film that was of an event that was staged. And um, that wouldn't happen when the television crews were all working for NBC, ABC, or CBS. One of the other things that we've seen happen, and it was the case in Vietnam with people like Michael Hare, but it also seems to have been more the case with with the respective Gulf Wars, is that many of the, the men and women that have fought in the war have gone on to write really interesting and sometimes profound memoirs about their experiences in the war, which has provided sometimes greater context than the reportage at the time. Well, I think that's true. And uh, I've enjoyed many of them, and I think that um, it's it's a good trend. And you have to remember that, I think you said it yourself, the reportage is just the first draft of history. And when you come back and have had time to reflect on it and can write a book, it's going to be a little bit more nuanced than, than the situation at the time, because... It, when you're reporting a story on deadline, 
you only have what you've learned up to that point. Well, if you write a book later, you can you can have more depth. One of the things, one of the themes that you come back to within the context of your own story and your own experience is the repeated mistakes that we have made in some of these adventures. Talk a little bit about that, David. Well, I began to see that we had simply followed the French into Indochina and at first paid for their war. And when the French war ended with the French losing, we came in uh, hoping to build up the South Vietnamese and keep them fighting. And But slowly we took over the war and it, it the perception of the Vietnamese people became that it was really our war, not so much theirs. And again, in so we had followed in the footsteps of the French Empire and ultimately failed, as the French did. And interestingly, I saw the South Vietnamese army that we paid millions, perhaps billions, to train and equip with modern arms, much better than the North Vietnamese had. And that army simply folded in the spring of 75, just the way the Iraqi army folded this last summer. Uh, uh, another army we had paid for. And what occurs to me is that it's not possible for foreigners, Americans or French before them or the British in Iraq or the the British and the Russians in, in Afghanistan, it's not really possible to motivate. We can train them and we can arm them, but we can't motivate them. And so all the effort we spent on the South Vietnamese army, it simply collapsed because it was hollow within. They didn't trust their government. They didn't trust their generals. And in Iraq, we spent, again, billions training them and equipping them. But the, the uh, and interestingly, Martin Dempsey, the General Dempsey, the mm-hmm. chief of staff, of the uh, armed forces was was then the general in charge of training Iraqis. And all that folded because although we could equip them and train them, we couldn't motivate them. And if there was a sectarian split, if the Shia didn't trust the Sunnis and the Sunnis didn't trust the Shia, the edifice was hollow. And I worry, I saw them uh, training us, uh, training Afghan soldiers in 2010. And we were really putting a good effort into it. But now it seems that we have almost as many people, our soldiers, shot by Afghan soldiers who don't like us. And just recently, right here in Massachusetts, we had some senior officers here for a training program in Cape Cod and three of them took off and headed for Canada, uh, simply deserting. So you have to worry that when we leave, things aren't going to go so well in Afghanistan either. So that what I come away with that is it's, it's not possible to motivate a, a foreign uh, army. That, and another mistake I think we made was we, 
we always tried to make them over into our image. We wanted them to be like Americans. We thought that if they were given a chance, they'd all want to be Americans. And I had an interesting talk with a Russian ambassador in, in Kabul. And he had been a young Foreign Service officer when the Russians were there. And he said, you know, we made the same mistake with the Afghans. We wanted to turn them into, into Russians. And we felt that if left alone, they'd want to be communists. And we thought we were saving them from Islamic extremism. But we didn't realize that Afghans are never going to be Russians. And you should realize they're never going to be Americans. And the idea of instilling our values into people who have where there's no background for that and no tradition is 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 hopeless in your view how did we come to this point of repeating this mistake over and over and over again what was it that really put us of a mindset to think that we could do this and to try and do it again and again with repeated failure each time well i think i think one of the good points of American uh, are we are very optimistic people and we keep thinking, well, next time we'll get it right. Uh, I think this is true in business. We, you can fail in a computer startup in this country and turn over and start again. In Europe, uh, that failure is, is, is considered much more serious and the person's not encouraged to pick himself up, dust himself off, and start again. But that optimism can get us into trouble. And Sebastian Junger, the, the great writer, uh, noticed in Afghanistan, and I think this applied to what I saw in Vietnam and in Iraq, that he said, the American officials weren't lying to you, they were inviting you to join a conspiracy of wish, wishful thinking. <laughs> and I think our wishful thinking, I saw this in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan, sometimes gets the best of us. You watched up close and personal the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. What impact, both positively and negatively, has that had on the way we approach these foreign incursions today? Well, the, the, I think the good thing about the collapse of the Soviet Union was it was managed so well without any, uh, yeah, there was a little bloodshed here and there, but nothing like the collapse of empires could and have resulted in. So I think that was extremely well managed. Um, and I always admired uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, when his aide said, when the Berlin Wall was coming down, they said, oh, you must go to Berlin like Kennedy did, like Reagan did, and, and crow about our victory. And he said, no, this is the German, this is the moment for the Germans. And uh, we, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't uh, be there crowing our, our victory. And I, I thought that restraint was, was uh, very wise. Talk a little bit about the sense of danger that, that you personally experienced over the years and the danger of, of being a foreign correspondent. You certainly saw it up close in Cambodia. 
certainly in, in many of the other places that, that you were stationed and posted over the years. And certainly it comes back to what we saw take place over the past several weeks in the Middle East. Well, it's, it's always going to be a dangerous business. Uh, there's no getting around that. And you mentioned Cambodia. If the Khmer Rouge, the, the extreme leftist organization, uh, if they caught you, there was no coming back. Uh, they killed you right away. They didn't photograph it on video cameras, but they killed you. Nobody, no reporter ever caught by the Khmer Rouge ever came back. So, you know, they're always dangerous, but you, in every theater where there's a war, you get, you learn little rules of behavior of, 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 that can, can save your life. For example, in Cambodia, if you went into a village and no children swarmed around you, children are always very curious and they think foreigners are from Mars and they want to have a look at you. If the children aren't crowding around you, you know that their parents have shut them up inside and you know there's some people nearby that you don't want to meet. So you get out of the village very quickly. And if you were driving down a road, the, the highways spread out from Phnom Penh like spokes of a wheel and the war was largely fought over control of these roads. But if there was no traffic coming the other way for a period of time, turn around, go back to Phnom Penh because you'd know that there was a roadblock ahead and probably set up by people you did not want to meet. And so you learned little tricks like that. And I, I, I don't know what this would be in Syria because this is an event I haven't covered, but I can imagine one rule is that don't if you want to get some information about what's ahead or what's in the next village don't go at it with too quick a question don't say hey mac uh, how's the situation up on the road ahead because you'll never get a straight answer people will tell you what they think you want to hear but you, if you take some time with them and have a cup of coffee or squat in the field with a farmer and that talk to them about the crops, and then ease into, oh, by the way, what, what's the condition in the next village? And the, oh, no, don't go there. You don't want to go there. So you have to be, and reporters are impatient. We want the story, and we want it right away, and we want to get going. If you take the time in the Middle East and in Indochina, um, conversations aren't as direct and abrupt as we Americans like to have them. So if you take a little time, it can save your life. And I'm sure reporters uh, um, know that and are observing that in the, in the Middle East today. And what about what's happened with respect to what's happened to these reporters and the danger to journalists becoming the center of the story, the reason for being in some respects for the story and for the, for the effort? Well, it's, uh, if, if reporters are targeted and not just the um, happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, they're actually targeted. This gets extremely dangerous and unmanageable. And I think that the worth of capturing Americans 
is if you capture a European, if you're the Islamic uh, state, you can get a huge ransom. And that's just become a racket. Americans and British don't pay ransoms. But if you, so if you capture one of us, the th big thing you can do is, is make a big um, political gesture by killing him on camera, which was supposed to frighten people and, and impress recruits of what a tough guy you are. So I'm afraid that our value now, if we're kidnapped in the Middle East, in, or in Iraq or Syria, not the whole Middle East, of course, is the value they have in killing us. Do you think that w that the American public is as interested today in what's going on in foreign places and around the world than it was back when, when you were working in, in Vietnam and the Middle East the first time, the first Gulf War? Yes, I think they are or would be, but there just aren't as many outlets uh, to give you that information as there used to be. But I don't think the basic interest is has at all uh, declined. It's just we're not able to give the public the the variety and the that we we were able to do before. And in many ways, when one looks at technology and the portability of it all, it should be in some respects easier, arguably, to bring this information to the American people. Well, it's easier. There's a lot more information. But how reliable is it? And that's what uh, editors and uh, television uh, editors and print editors have to have to consider. So you might have somebody with a cell phone who who gets an interview and you've never heard of him before, but you don't know uh, you don't know uh, does he have a dog in this fight? Is he? trying to influence you in one way or another. And that's more difficult with, with your own people. You don't have to worry about that, your own em employees in the field. And that's the context that we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, 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 the blogosphere is full of information, but you don't know which blog is by an informed, impartial person who's giving you the best judgment you can get on that, or whether the, the, the other blogger is just like the drunk at the end of the bar. H.D.S. <laughs> Greenway, his memoir about his many years as a foreign correspondent is entitled Foreign Correspondent. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.